This is a fundamental truth that goes across all areas of the economy. If your focus is on income, do not expect appreciation. Don't expect a lot of growth in the underlying value. If your focus is on appreciation, don't expect a lot of income unless it's from the sale of the appreciated assets. Those are just important things to hold in mind. And if it's really income-based, don't expect a lot of liquidity. What does that mean? Don't expect to be able to sell it all whenever you want to. And we're back with more of the personal wealth coach. Uh, <laughs> we, we're back. Um, this is the personal wealth coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. Together we are bald and we're actually going to make an attempt to sound like we actually know what we're talking about. I know that's a stretch, but we're going to attempt it. Uh, do you want to lead with your first subject or do you want me to jump in? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. I guess it's, uh, I don't have a big sub. Well, it's a big subject. It's actually a huge subject. China has become, maybe it was all along, has become very unstable. Yeah. We were talking about earlier in previous weeks and been writing about the fact that their real estate market appears to be crumbling. Um, it was artificial. It was propped up artificially by the government. It was created artificially. And there's only so long that you can do these things. And apparently, the very, very large number of homes, and many of these homes are condos, that are unfinished and are still remaining unfinished, but people paid for and have loans to pay for, uh, they're making payments, but they don't have a place to live, um, has been, is, is still unaddressed. And the, the COVID lockdowns continue, the draconian lockdowns where people are forced to stay at factories and can't go home. Yeah, that's and a, that's the kind of big headline is the Foxconn uh, company plant that is the iPhone manufacturer. Man, that's a mess. And fundamentally the the co China is caught in a really tough situation. If they relax their lockdowns they do not have a healthcare system capable of handling the number of people who almost certainly will be very, very ill with COVID, particularly the older people. Only about 20% of the older people in China have had any form of vaccination. And, and as I said, the Chinese vaccine, the Sinovac that they came out with is apparently pretty much totally ineffective against the mutated forms, the Omicron and so on, that are, that are circulating in their, in their environment now. So if they were to re relax the lockdowns, the pandemic could have the same effect on the rest of China that it had on Wuhan at the beginning. In other words, put a lot of people in the hospital and you can't then swarm every town and fill it up with brand huge hospitals like they did at the beginning in Wuhan. This would be a disaster for China. On the other hand, if they continue the lockdowns and they have continued the lockdowns, it just isn't working. People aren't getting food. Fires are not getting put out. It's, that is something not working. And, and this, very frankly, comes in the middle of a big debate that we've talked about for years. The big debate that's going on, the big contest that's going on, is between autocratic, centrally controlled government, which is what China has, 
and a decentralized, chaotic form of government that we have in the United States, where we basically have 50 nations that have banded together and are arguing with each other on an almost continual basis about everything. Um, but we've agreed to stick together, and that's why it's called the United States of America. Uh, we did, about 150 years ago, make an effort at splitting it in half, and that didn't work real well. And I hope we don't ever do that again. But what's happening in China is, is critical to us. And why is it critical to us? If you, Jake was talking yesterday about trying to buy a headset. How many headsets did you look at before you could find one that wasn't made in China? Uh, I was scrolling through many dozens. I actually had to put in a search term like Sony to get a studio headset that wasn't from an unknown name brand. Um, in China. In China, yeah. And so much of what we purchase in the world and so much of the reason that inflation has been so low for so long is the fact that the Chinese have been able to supply a tremendous amount of manufactured goods to Europe, the United States, and the rest of the world uh, because they have this economy that's growing from people who were peasants behind oxes, uh, between oxen, behind oxen, growing quickly into an industrialized and then digitalized economy very quickly. And so they had a lot of people paid very little money who could do a lot and think it was the greatest thing in the world because their standard of living was going up. That's going away. It has gone away. Yeah. I've got a, a great article. Um, those that have listened for a while know that I, I read a uh, Chinese law blog. Uh, it's an international law firm that sets up organizations and over the past several decades made a big name for itself in creating wholly uh, foreign-owned enterprises in China or making a partnership with a Chinese corporation for manufacturing. And they're not really spending a lot of time on that subject anymore, creating these things. They're more, how do you shut them down without the Chinese getting mad at you? Really, really mad at you. Um, there's a, a great example of this uh, in their one of their more recent posts to the blog, is that one of their clients said, hey, we, are, we have... 47 Chinese employees, this is a wholly owned foreign subsidiary, so they're called WFOE, Wholly Foreign Owned Enterprise. And they discovered not just corruption, but rampant corruption, like massive theft occurring. So they emailed the, the law firm and said, we need to cut them now. We need to shut them down because... They're stealing the manufacturing equipment. They're stealing the money that's set for payroll. They're stealing the products that are supposed to be us selling. Um, we're supposed to sell these products. They're stealing them, and they're stealing the equipment. We want to shut them down tomorrow. And the law firm said, not if you want to work in China ever again. You can't shut them down. You have to pay each of your employees a major layoff bonus, or they're going to complain to the local bureaucracy and you're going to get blacklisted. That's the sort of thing that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis rather than setting up relationships with companies to do business. It's more, how do we shut down these companies from doing business together? Because they were, this is, they, they whitewashed the emails and so on, so nobody can tell the identities of the employers. But we were just talking about headsets, uh, studio headphones. And if we're to use that as the, as the 
the label, Panasonic, Sony, you go down the list of these studio headset companies, where are they creating their headsets? Well, in China. Well, the Chinese companies, when I, you know, I got a Sony headset, when I compare that Sony headset to all of these other off-brands, these brands that I've never heard of before, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, they look identical to the Sony headset. They may be the Sony headset with a new label on it. And what does that mean for Sony? Well, what does that mean for Amazon? When anybody in China can make whatever they want, regardless of intellectual property laws and so on, and basically be stealing from the people that they had agreements with, there's not a lot of recourse. And that's getting worse. We talked about this at the beginning of last year in depth, where I was talking about an internal conflict between Chinese companies that you're going to be seeing on Amazon for the rest of the year and into this year. And it was true. I mean, their quality was dropping. And that's the reality of what's happening in China right now is that there is this feeling of we're losing our business, so let's squeeze as much out of the people that are still here as we possibly can. There may still be some quality business being done in China, but that's not what's making the news at the moment. And when even Apple, who has been adamant that they're going to stay in China for the last since the pandemic started. Nope, we're going to be in China. We're going to build our iPhones in China. The Pro, the 14 Pro, the iPhone 14 Pro, which is the newest and the best, and you know everybody wants it. To put air quotes around all of that. It's the the fad of what's going on. There's not enough to go around for the holiday season. Well, why? There's a zero COVID policy because the plants in China have been in bubble mode where they can't leave the plant and they've had massive protests and the, a lot of people snuck off site and left so they didn't have workers. And so the Taiwanese company that owns the plant in mainland China is now hiring new people to come in with bonus signing because they need somebody to actually do the work. Then when they showed up, uh, no knowing how exactly this occurred, they didn't pay the signing bonus that they promised. So the people, the new people that just replaced the people that absconded and sometimes left with equipment, um, the new people came in and started protesting and breaking things and the riot police have to show up. And this is at an Apple manufacturing facility that has, generally speaking, 300,000 people working in it. That is, putting it lightly, that's, that's a lot of people at one, and they call it I, the, the Apple City. And when there are big demonstrations with that many people, there were a lot of riot police, and there was a lot of injury that was taking place. This doesn't look good for Apple, who's trying to keep that squeaky clean image that they've had for so long squeaky clean. So they're saying, we're moving to India and to Vietnam. And we're putting this into full fast forward mode rather than we're going to look at this over the next 10 years. And Apple's one of the last major holdouts. So China's got some major issues going on. When you talk about their real estate, uh, real estate in China is about a third of their economy, which is not a good ratio no matter what economy you have. Real estate 
as far as raw land or even making new buildings being more than about 5% of your economy is absurd. Why? Well, because if you're making real estate a third of your economy, you would think that a third of the workforce is involved in construction and so on. A third of the of uh, the output would be new buildings. And that's not what we're seeing. Though there was a lot of new building, it wasn't a third of their workforce. It was what so what what is that's causing this to be well it's speculation on land development. Lots of it, massive amounts of it, and huge amounts of those have gone belly up now. Uh, that's not showing up in the GDP numbers that China's releasing late uh, with lots of whitewashing. They have slow growth. When a third of your economy is imploding and the rest of it is in lockdown, you can't expect us to believe that they've got good growth in their GDP, which is what the Chinese government is saying. The youth unemployment in China, according to their own statistics, which are not very believable, is right at 18%. Youth being from 16 to about 22. That's a pretty uh, important age group. And that's part of what's fueling the demonstrations that we're seeing in China right now over the lockdown is when you get close to 20% of the young people out of work. This is what in, in Saudi Arabia leads to radicalization and the United States leads to riots and in China is leading to riots. It's the same thing. You've got a near 20% unemployment rate for a key demographic. It's really hard for us to look at China and say this is fine. What's more, and this is something we were talking about at the beginning before the program got started, we watch trucks. We look at truck traffic to, as one of our indicators for what's happening. And truck traffic is down. One of the other things that we watch is what are the rates being charged for container shipping from China to the U.S.? And those rates are at about a quarter of what they were a year ago. They went from $20,000 a container, or, or $20,000 as the, as the index, to $4,000, $4,500. What does that mean? Well, there's less demand because there's less, or there may be more demand, but less goods being shipped, which means that the shipping, there's lots of room for it, so the prices are down. That's going to hit our economy too. Um, what I would say this Christmas is that a lot of the things that we would normally expect to arrive very quickly are likely not going to arrive very quickly. And that affects truck drivers. Even though we still want to buy the stuff, if there's not stuff to buy or it's taking a long time to get to us, the truck drivers know that eventually they're going to deliver that stuff. But in the meantime, they're waiting to fill up their truck. And that's causing layoffs on the trucking industry. This is another bullwhip effect. We might see massive hiring and trucking in two months, but it'll be late because the Christmas season is right now. So all of that is fascinating and so on. China is an interesting conundrum. It is becoming a dictatorship and many of the... Um, efforts being made by governments around the world, more democratic governments are saying, hey, we've got to look at, at what's going on 
uh, with uh, the rest of the world and make sure that we're doing business with people that aren't reducing the rights of their citizens or stealing from the people that are doing business with them. China's not got a really good outlook as far as the business context goes going forward. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I kind of, I read an article that got me thinking about it in, in The Economist, and I think it's very true. The, the article's headline was, Has Chinese Power Peaked? And I, I think it's entirely possible we have seen them hit their maximum. Uh, we knew it eventually because of demographics, uh, they were going to start in, into a decline. That was a given. Yeah, their population but, is aging. They're not having right. enough kids. This, the one-child policy was a big deal. And I think just as in Russia, the fact that they moved to a total autocratic top-down system where whatever the philosophy of the person is at the top dictates everything. Not There's no debate. There's The person at the top has surrounded himself with people who want to agree with him and do nothing else. Throughout history, that has been a suicidal form of government. And I think China may be, and, and it will become perhaps more dangerous because of it, because it's a well-armed declining empire. And China, by the way, is not a nation. It's an empire. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There are at least just, five. Just like Russia is. There's five large-scale languages spoken in what we call China. Uh, and, and there's five, at least five, actually far more than five, nationalities of people who speak those different languages, who think of themselves as Chinese but only peripherally in some cases. Um, China is a danger spot, and it's a danger spot for multiple reasons. One, they are the largest supplier of manufactured goods to the world by far. They're the biggest exporters in the world. And Europe, the United States, and the rest of the world, in many ways, is very dependent upon China. And just as Apple, the headline in the Wall Street Journal today is Apple is moving its production out of China, that's going to be a big trend and it's going to cause weakness in china and it's going to cause prices to go up there's a lot of instability coming in that area yeah russia russia has 27 official languages at mm. the state level uh, not at the, um, at the country level at the country empire level russia is the official language but each state in russia gets to set other official languages there are 27 unique languages that are official languages of russia it's um, it continues to be a problem, and we just got a uh, question from Roger. It said on a TSN Network Farm News Show broadcast each morning on KTM, there have been multiple mentions of concern that the Chinese are buying up a lot of U.S. farmland. I haven't heard anything about that somewhere anywhere other than this. Have you? Um, what I saw was two years ago and three years ago, there was a lot of effort to get money out of China. So we, oh, yeah, we talked yeah. about that over that time period. Some people did that by stockpiling aluminum in Mexico. Some people did that by stockpiling. Some Chinese people. Chinese yeah. people. Um, billionaires that were stockpiling stuff outside because the, the yuan is not something you can export. If you have a lot of money in China and you're not comfortable with the direction that China's going, and you're Chinese, you want to get the money out. So how do you do it? Well, they bought aluminum. They bought farmland. One of the things that is carefully watched at this point that wasn't five years ago is the international uh, location of the buyers of stuff 
in the United States. There are committees for it that do research into this. And while the Chinese did buy a lot of farmland in the United States over the last five years, there's not a lot of it happening now. And those that did buy it are stuck. Uh, they, they have a lot of trouble selling it now because of the same issue with the committees at the governmental level that are saying who's selling and what. Um, they're, they're not held in a uh, preferable position when they're holding it. Uh, well, there's, there's only about 3% of U.S. farmland owned by foreign persons or corporations, so it isn't a big thing. As China, there's, there's uh, a bill been introduced in Congress to ban that. Uh, China, California is close to banning it. Roger, I think you're right. It, it is like when the Japanese started buying things. Uh, there was a period of time when the Chinese were flush with money. Rockefeller uh, Center was purchased yeah. by the Japanese in the, in the late 80s. Right. And um, I think the Chinese were flush with money and trying to get it out any way they could recently. I think we're reacting to something that has come to a halt because, frankly, China's economy looks like, and, and there's no guarantee this is happening because we can't see it very clearly, it looks like it's cratering. And if it starts to crater, I think what you will see, the same thing that happened in Japan, you'll see that the Chinese are going to be busy trying to sell that land back to somebody to get some liquidity very quickly. So I don't think it's a, a big threat. Uh, there, there are um, congressional sources of information that say that China owns about 192,000 acres of farmland in the United States. That's there's, not there's much. 35 million acres of farmland out there. So it's not something we like to see, particularly when you got a despot as a ruler. We don't like to see the Chinese owning farmland in the United States, but the reality is that their management and ownership of land, farmland in the United States is problematic in that very quickly it stops being farmland because they have a lot of trouble figuring out who to hire to run the farm. So it becomes fallow very quickly. It might still be labeled as farmland, but it's not productive anymore. And that's an important factor when you talk about any ownership of U.S. farmland. I'd like to change the subject a little bit um, to a threat that is far more... You're going to uh, threaten me? Actually not. Oh, you're not going to threaten me? Okay. No. Oh, man, it's less, less important now. Okay, go ahead. BlackRock Black Rock has a real estate investment trust that's a privately run it isn't a really it isn't a publicly traded fund it is uh, it's a very large one it's it has been relatively successful uh it has good income streams on paper it looks really good except that it's not traded and they announced this last week that they are limiting withdrawals and they matter of fact there was 125 million dollars worth of withdrawals requested that they turned down says you can't have your money now, most of those withdrawals, that's why I say Chinese, this, this links into the Chinese economy cratering. Most of those withdrawals are coming out of China. Chinese who had invested in the BlackRock Real Estate Investment Trust. Most of, and, and as a result, as a matter of fact, 70% of the withdrawals came out of China. And uh, the there's only 20% of the fund owned out of China. So that's really a uh, serious big thing. Okay. The, the issue here is that standard real estate investment trusts that are traded on the, on the New York Stock Exchange or wherever they're traded have dropped between 20 and 30% this year in value. So if you owned a real estate investment trust and it was publicly traded or a real estate investment mutual fund, you will see that it's down significantly this year. If you had owned the BlackRock 
Real Estate Investment Trust, which is not publicly traded, you will see that it theoretically rose in value this year uh, on the paper. On paper, you see that it rose in value. And here is a serious threat, a thing that people get into and they just have no idea they got into it and they don't know what they've got. Even though they promised a certain amount of liquidity, they have shut the valve off. You can't get money out of it anymore. In other words, the price went up on paper but you can't get it back because it's not it's not traded and they're not going to go around selling property. Matter of fact, they just sold their, what they advertised as the jewel of their breed, as it was called, which is in the MGM complex in, in Las Vegas. They just put it up for sale and got a discounted value for it. Why do they put it up for sale at this point? Because people want their money back. And when I say they got a discounted value, that means they lost money on the people who invested in that lost money on the deal. It is... Anytime that you get into something that's not publicly traded, that is not regulated as a publicly traded uh, investment trust, preferably under the Investment Company Act of 1940, I know that sounds like gobbledygook, but it's important, uh, and is available on an exchange, you don't know what the value is. You literally don't know what the value is. And I've been around long enough to see these things crater, and there's no real warning. The value is steady. The Value keeps being reported is going up and up and up. And then you say, I'd like to get my some money back out of this. And they say, I'm sorry, you can't have any money. It's worth, and believe me, I've seen it offered by insurance companies. I've seen them offered by private placements. I've seen them offered in real estate investment trusts and limited partnerships. It seems like each cycle, they get renamed into something else. But anything that you get that is not publicly traded, matter of fact, I have a rule. If you can't look it up in Morningstar and see the price, and see an analysis on it of some kind, you probably shouldn't be in it. Yeah. So the BlackRock um, fund, the BlackRock Real Estate Income Trust, Briant. Um, what this is? I've gotten some questions on that. How can they limit withdrawals? How is it that they uh, an investment trust isn't a 1940 Act vehicle? Number one. Number two. What they own is not particularly liquid. They're owned, the actual real estate. So when you want to sell that thing and you want to get your money out, the act of bringing your money out of that fund sometimes requires the manager to sell actual real estate. Anybody that's sold actual real estate knows that that doesn't happen overnight. You have to list it. Oftentimes you have to have a broker involved. You have to have a uh, the, the entirety of this takes time. It's not liquid. So they have rules in place at a lot of these income funds that are based in illiquid assets. And that is if you, if people want to sell more than about 2% of the holdings in a month, and in their case, they say 2% of the holdings per month or 5% per quarter. If it exceeds that, they just say nobody else gets to sell anything. And what they have said at this is that if they have re if they receive elevated repurchase requests in the first quarter of next year, they intend to fulfill repurchases at the two percent of that. Basically, what they're saying is we'll go back to two percent if they get a bunch, but don't count on it because the quarter might already hit the five percent mark, and then we won't we won't give you your money. The underlying reality is that um, the people who look at real estate prices on rental real estate, what I mean is much of real estate trusts in apartments and places like that 
where somebody is paying rent to the trust that owns the building. And because of the, there was a big surge in rental property, rental apartment complexes and so on value during the pandemic, a huge surge in value occurred there. Interest rates got super low. Uh, people wanted to move in and they did. And it was high demand. It was low supply that all worked together. Now, interest rates have gone up dramatically, which means if somebody wants to buy that apartment complex from you, let's say you owned a small apartment complex, the loan that they would have to get to buy the complex would be far more expensive, which means the price of the complex, all of the things being equal, go down. But at the same time, the demand to rent has fallen dramatically for a series of reasons. The end result is, in the real estate marketplace, rental properties not not the rent on the properties, but rental properties have dropped between 20 and 10 to 20%. But the BlackRock Real Estate Investment Trust, the Briet, what would you call it? Burrito? Breit. 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 <laughs> the Breit, Breit. Um, went up in value. Why did it go up in value? Because BlackRock marked it up in value. It's just that simple. Uh, they said, we think it's worth this much. Well, the rest of the real estate market says no uh, rental real estate buildings where you are receiving rent for real estate have dropped in value. Why have they dropped in value? Largely because short-term interest rates have gone up. Also because demand has fallen off and people aren't willing to buy them as readily as they were in the past. But is not reflected when you buy one of these non-traded uh, cooled investments. And the other side of that, I don't know about this one. I don't have any specific information on the breed. But in my experience when I was a broker, when I did my research, as much as 20% of the money that an investor puts into a non-traded pooled investment of some kind, be it a private placement, be it a venture capital fund, be it a real estate, uh, privately managed real estate fund or whatever, as much as 20% of that never makes it to the real estate. Yeah, it goes to the management, to the commissions. to, And if you think about that from a, directly from a small business, say you want to buy uh, some houses and rent them out yourself. Well, if you do all the work yourself, all of it, from one end to the other, it's going to cost you 6% round trip to do the purchase. That's the commission price. It, that's the brokers that are involved in the buying and selling of real estate. It has nothing to do with you. Then you have to do the time to make sure that the house is rented out. You've got to list it as an advertisement somewhere. You got to screen the potential uh, lease ors, you uh, lease ease, to make sure that they're not going to destroy your investment. That all costs money. It costs time. So these things by their nature are expensive and they're designed to create long-term income streams. This is a fundamental truth that goes across all areas of the economy. If your focus is on income, do not expect appreciation. Don't expect a lot of growth in the underlying value. If your focus is on appreciation, don't expect a lot of income unless it's from the sale of the appreciated assets. Those are just important things to hold in mind. And if it's really income-based, don't expect a lot of liquidity. What does that mean? Don't expect to be able to sell it all whenever you want to. Uh, that's just hard 
coded into the reality of the world. If you've got a lot of income coming from th- something, it's generally a going concern, and those tend to be harder to sell. If you have $50 million or so, and you could hire your own crew, your own analysts, your own accountants to look at something like this, or better yet, put it together on your own, you can probably reduce the cost of having it to a reasonable percentage. Right. If you don't have $50 million, I think it's the number you used the other day, Jake, when we were talking about this. Uh, 30, you, 30 million, I think, is a, well, is a better number. 30 for, million, like, if 50 you wanted, million dollars. Yeah, something in that category. It's easy to make efficiencies at that level. Let's just say that and as, as much as a million dollars you put into one of these things or $100,000 or whatever they ask for, you can say with some degree of confidence, it's not, I can't guarantee this in every case, certainly, There's, you're going to lose about 20% as soon as you buy it. Not because the property value goes down, but because the 20% never gets there. So if you put a million dollars into it, it immediately becomes $800,000. It is really hard for a piece of real estate or a lot of pieces of real estate that are depreciating over time. And I know that people can't believe that real estate depreciates. All you have to do is go into the heart of any city or even in the heart of Temple. Temple, Texas. If you're here in Central Texas. Temple, Texas. If you're here in Central Texas and drive through downtown Temple and see the boarded up buildings. Now, there's not as many as there used to be. Many of them have been torn down or rebuilt, but it costs more to refurbish that building than the building is worth in many cases. Far more than was ever paid for the building. Real estate depreciates over time. That's why the IRS lets you depreciate your building because it costs money to keep it in good repair. If you keep pumping money into the building, if you keep renovating the building and you keep it up to date and you pump money into it on a regular basis, it can appreciate in value very, very nicely if the economy of the area that it's in appreciates very nicely. But unless you're pumping money back into the building, if you're milking all the income out of that building, there's kind of a rule of thumb, and it's a very good rule of thumb, that if you buy a million-dollar building and you milk as much as you can out of it without you, – you, you pay your taxes and you do your minimum roof repairs and you do whatever needs to be fixed that's broken, but you Just don't the renovate the building. Right. 30 years later, it's worth whatever it takes. To, it's, it's probably not worth as much as it takes to tear it down. Right. So that is the reality of that, real estate. And, and there, say, there's you, a good there's a good word for that, by the way. It's called mortgage. Okay. It's a Latin word. Two words in there. Mort means death. Gauge means measurement. Right. Mortgage means death expectancy. It's about thirty years for a construction before, if you're just doing minimal upkeep, before it's worth only the raw land. And that's an important. And sometimes worth less than raw land because you got to tear down, tear down something that's on the raw land. Yeah, and that sounds like we're like stomping all over the concept of real estate. We're not. If you know what you're doing in real estate and you've devised a good income strategy that you're taking, some of that income that comes to you every month from a rental house has to be set aside for repairs. If you just take it and spend it as income, some of that is principal because you have to upkeep the property. So you have to have a strategy to recognize what part of your income needs to be contributed back into the maintenance and repair because it's not 100% real income. Some portion of that is giving you back your original investment. Let me give you an example. A lot of houses were built in Austin in the 1940s and 50s. And sure enough, 30 years later, add 30 years to 1950. 
Yeah, 1980. It's the 1980s. Those houses, when people bought the house in most cases, they would bulldoze the house and build something new because the actual structure on the property had decayed to the point where it was a negative number. Now come now, forward to 2000. To come forward right. to 2008 through 2012, 30 years later, and what's happening again, you see a lot of bulldozing, a lot of new houses being built. It's a, it's a cycle. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they rebuilt the old house. But if you look at the money they put into rebuilding the old house, even after adjusting it for inflation, you will discover they actually put considerably more money into the renovation of the old 1940s or 50 house than actually was paid for the house to begin with. So the the house had come actually gone to a negative number. And- but we're about out of time for this week. We are. I didn't spend as much time on that as I wanted, but this is, this is a good nugget of truth. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized investment advice to people of high net worth. We do the investment management, portfolio management and creation and analysis and all that good stuff. You can talk to us off the air. We're your privacy won't be impaired. Um, locally, you can reach our voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com and you can find our radio program, podcasts. You can also get those podcasts anywhere where podcasts are. Uh, you can read our newsletter going way back and sign up for our newsletter. You can contact us through our contact form or directly through email at Jeff and or Jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for spending your Saturday morning with us. And if you're listening at another time, your other time with us, we appreciate you more than we can say. Thanks for listening to the Personal Wealth Coach.